Hi, it's dating coach Chris Luna from Craft Charisma. Welcome to the Craft Charisma podcast, our free audio coaching program where we interview the top experts in the world at helping you become the man you've always wanted to be. My guest today is Jay Papasan. Jay is a best-selling author, executive, and corporate speaker. He serves as the vice president and executive editor at Keller Williams Realty International, the world's largest real estate company. He is the co-author of The One Thing, which he wrote with Gary Keller, which has made over 500 appearances on national bestseller lists, including number one on the Wall Street Journal's hardcover business list. Uh, Thank you so much for coming on the show today, Jay. Thanks so much for having me, Chris. I'm excited to be here. So can you tell me a little bit about your background, kind of what you do and how you got into it? Sure. I guess the, the thumbnail version is... Um, I've always loved books. I've always loved writing. Uh, I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee. Um, after graduating from college, I went overseas um, and worked in France for about three years and eventually ended up in New York. Um, went to NYU to grad school and got a writing degree there. And from that, ended up in publishing, which had been kind of a, a lifelong pursuit of mine to end up there someday, either as a writer or as an editor. And I worked at HarperCollins Publishers for several years and had some pretty amazing um, mentors. I got to work with a guy named David Hershey, who was deputy editor of Esquire for 10 years and just knew everyone in the business. And uh, he was a great mentor for me. Um, while there, um, I mentioned this when we were talking before the call, that's where I met my wife. And I relocated with her to Austin, where I took a job at a small real estate company. Back then, Keller Williams um, wasn't even national, and there were 6,700 agents. But since the year 2000, we've now grown to be number one in North America with over 105,000 agents. And I started off as a tech writer. You know, I'd done all these best-selling books at HarperCollins, but there was no publishing here. But then I found out that the founder, Gary Keller, was writing a book. There were only 27 employees back then. And one of the web designers who sat next to me was clearly working on a book cover. And I'm like, are you freelancing at work? And he goes, no, didn't you hear that Gary's writing a book? And uh, I ran into him in the bathroom. And I said, Gary, do you remember that I used to work at HarperCollins? And he gave me a look that clearly meant he forgot that someone who worked for him was already in publishing. And he called me into his office. And uh, in about five minutes, he had between two calls, he laid out a vision for writing 13 books. Um, He had a big old vision. And uh, he laid out five of his favorite self-help business books. And as luck would have it, two of them were books that I'd published. Mia Hamm's Go for the Goal and a book called Body for Life by Bill Phillips. And uh, that was back in 2002. And since then, we've written 12 books, six of them national bestsellers. And the biggest one, the one that you mentioned, The One Thing, which is a business book that reached number one. So it's that's kind of my thumbnail version of the story of I'm a book writer and I also run a publishing company. That's incredible. So can you tell us a little bit about The One Thing? What is kind of the basic theme and why has it done so well? Well, I think the timing uh, was perfect for us. Um, The one thing, the subtitle says, the surprisingly simple truth behind extraordinary results. Um, When Gary first mentioned this idea, um, he was trying to get uh, the real estate company to focus on fewer things. And he wrote an essay called The Power of One that he kind of circulated. And I immediately, as someone who'd worked in publishing, thought, wow, this is it. This is really the secret to all of his success in growing this company. He's a smart guy, but he's not always the smartest guy in the room. And he's hardworking. 
but he's got a really surprisingly balanced life for someone who's you know does as much as he does. The real key to his success is he's always been able to identify the top priority and been willing to give it more time than anyone else. And so at its crux, um, the one thing is a practical book. I really, it was very important for us that it not just be theoretical to help people identify what their top priority was at any given moment or in a bigger sense for a period of their life. And then by virtue of being clear about that, they can actually start doing a lot less stuff. Um, I think at this point in our lives, at this point, you know, I, especially I remember being in New York, your calendars are overbooked, your to-do list run two or three pages long. I mean, they have whole apps now for tracking all the stuff you haven't done. And it adds up to a lot of stress for people. You know, they're, you know, we're promoting ourselves through all of our social media channels and we're trying to find, you know, as your site works, you know, someone to be with when we're not at work. And it's a lot. And I think when people are able and have the tools to figure out what matters most, saying no to the other stuff becomes remarkably easy. And that would be to me the number one thing that we try to convince people that one they can do and how to do it in the one thing. If somebody's listening to this and they are in a situation where they are overwhelmed, how do they begin to cut through some of that clutter? Okay, I think the one of the, the thieves that we wrote about in the back of the book is you know, the inability to say no. And I think the power to say no comes from a clarity to what you're actually saying yes to. So the, the tool at the heart of the book, and it's pretty humble, and it's actually about 150 pages in because we knew if we started with it, we led with it, people would be like, oh, that's just too simple. But it's actually a question. It's a question that, you know, we made it sound important. It's called the focusing question. And this is it verbatim. What's the one thing I can do such that by doing it, everything else will be easier or unnecessary? And that question actually stemmed from several years of Gary consulting with business people. And I don't know if you've ever been in a consulting relationship, Chris, but a lot of times you get on the phone with your coach and you know, you diagnose the problem and you agree to do a certain number of things before the next call. And so Gary would end his calls with these entrepreneurs and say, so it sounds like you're going to do X, Y, and Z between now and next week. Is that right? He'd get, you know, commitment. And then by and large, the next week, people would have done one or two of those things, but never all of them. And rarely would they do the most important thing. And over time, out of frustration, he kept shortening the list. If you could only do two things this week, what would they be? And it was actually out of frustration that he said, if you could only do one thing. And what showed up for him is that when he narrowed it to one thing on your to-do list, everybody did it. Because there's no place to hide. You can't say, but I did number three. You either did it or you didn't do it. And then their results started going through the roof. And so that question is designed to, one, get your brain thinking about the most important thing on your list. What's the one thing I can do? So it's not something that you might do later you would do, should do, or could do. It's something you can do right now. And then the second half, which is a mouthful, I grant you, such that by doing it, everything else will be easier or necessary. You're looking for the levered action. And if you're familiar with Pareto's principle, right, that 80% of what you get, your results come from 20% of your actions. It's really this idea that there are things in this world that you do that you get a bigger bang for your buck. The 80-20 are relative to the activity. But in every activity, there's something that matters more. And the goal is to identify that and focus on that first. 
And so that's the fundamental thing. When we wrote the book, we could have, on the back of it, if you had a copy, we just put a big question mark. We could have put all kind of plaudits on there and quotes from famous people. But what we wanted people to do, the one thing we wanted them to do when they put down this book is ask the question, what's my one thing? What's my one thing right now? And in our experience, in our coaching, in our training, it's amazing when people actually stop to ask the question how much clarity they immediately get and how that helps them start cutting through the clarity because they've said yes to something. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes it makes absolute sense. So do you guys have kind of like a system for kind of how you determine what is that kind of one thing? Because there's so many different directions that a person could kind of go or, or does it not really matter? I think that's a great question. And I get people like I do keynotes or we do training seminars and people will come up to me and I'll say, this is my situation. And I think this is my one thing. Do you agree? And because I help write the book, they think that I have some special set of knowledge that might apply to their lives. Um, I think the actual, the answer to the question is generally going to be quite personal. Um, I think most people know what they should be doing and they could be doing to make things better and actually feel guilty about not doing it. Um, and if they don't get it exactly right, at least they're getting into some sort of levered action. So I usually don't question it. I say, if that's what you think is the right thing to be doing to achieve that goal, then start there and see how that, how that works for you. And then ask the question again in a week. And based on your experience, you might get a better answer. So I think the first thing you do is you aim it at something. So what's the one thing I can do in my relationship? right? Such that by doing it, everything else will be easier or necessary. I can tell you for a fact with my wife, it's that when I come home, is that instead of me futzing with all my work stuff, I stop and say, how was your day? How was work, honey? If I stop and actually communicate with her, and tons of research says that the number one measure of a lot of relationships else is their ability to communicate. So me purposely inserting that into my life makes a big difference. So there's a lot of like, it's easy to measure in health stuff, but whether it's running a marathon or for your work, there's usually one thing that'll stand out if you stop to think about it just by narrowing the frame and you can narrow it two ways. What's, what's am I talking about? And then you can narrow it in time. What's the one thing I can do this week, this month, this year? And usually the answer is people are pretty surprisingly accurate when you ask the question that way. You said the second part of the one thing was Everything will be easier and like I didn't catch the last part. Unnecessary. A domino run is the metaphor we use in the book. And the metaphor is obvious. When you line things up in the right order, you can knock over one thing and it makes a lot of stuff happen. And we actually found some research and it was by a physicist. And he had written a paper, it was kind of obscure in 1986, um, I think it was in the American Journal of Physics, but he figured out that a two-inch domino can knock over a domino that's 50% larger. So a two-inch domino can knock over a three-inch domino, and a three-inch domino can knock over a four-and-a-half-inch domino. And frankly, my math kind of breaks down there. But it actually can go on for infinity. And the guy who did the test and wrote about it, he actually built, I think, a series of nine wooden dominoes and the last one was bigger than a door frame and he knocked over that little two inch domino and the combined momentum that it built up knocked over the big one and he said what began with a gentle tick ended with a large slam so our theory is that, is that when you start with the most leveraged thing 
a lot of other stuff becomes completely unnecessary or a lot less important. And it doesn't make everything go away, but it can knock out a lot of stuff. Well, that was one of my kind of next questions. How can people achieve better results in less time? Okay, well, let's start by focusing and concentrating your energies, right? So um, if I come into the office and my frame of work is, you know, how can I become a better author or a programmer? What I tell people to do, and it fundamentally the book, when you add all of its component parts together, is identifying the one activity, the thing that will give you the best results for whatever it is you're pursuing. And if it's a bigger goal, like something for your career or for a relationship, it's not just a one-time event, you want to make that thing a habit. So you build habits around the things that will absolutely work for you the most. Um, one of the kind of cooler things, I, I'd all my life heard about habit formation. You know, people trot out, it takes 21 days to form a habit. And so we went in search of something that would back up that number other than it being anecdotal in all these self-help books. And there was nothing that we could find that supported it. But we did find some research from a group called um, out of the, the College of London, which is in Australia. They got, I think, 165 students to take on a health habit. And it was anything they wanted to do from drinking eight glasses of water a day to quitting smoking. And all they did was follow them around for a year asking, did you do it? And how hard was it every single day? And what they found was that on average, that at 66 days, it got as easy as it was ever going to get. So it actually takes about three times as long, more than three times as long to form a habit than most people think. So let's go back to a programmer or a designer or for me, a writer. I time block at least two hours. I try to time block four hours when writing a book every day to work on my craft. And that is the habit for me is that I show up and I know that around nine or 10 o'clock it's writing time and the people around me know it's writing time and they try to show up before and they know that I'll, they can get me after, but they know for that period of time, my door's closed, my cell phone's off. And that habit kind of starts to create barriers around the one activity that matters the most to my success. A salesperson would be making sales calls during that time. As you were talking, I was, I thought of a bunch of examples. I thought about baseball players. Let's say that, um, the single most important part of their job is connecting with their bat to the ball or hitting home runs, for example, because like to say they're a power hitter, then the amount of home runs is going to drive everything else. Or as you said, a salesperson in real estate going out and, and getting new leads because those new leads are going to drive everything else. New leads are new listings, right? Yeah. If you're an athlete or a musician, your one thing is probably practice. I think Elway, um, was it Jonathan Elway? John Elway, rather. I was trying to think one of these guys, like he figured out that in a game, you know, he might throw at most, you know, 20 to 30 passes. And he would actually have the ball in his hands for, of the whole game, maybe 12 minutes. And then he added up every week. He was putting in you know, a thousand passes and more than 50 hours of practice towards 12 minutes of action. So he was giving a massive amount of his one thing towards a very limited outcome, like 12 minutes of his professional day would be doing his one thing. But he took tons and tons of time into making that really work. His professional day once a week. 
16 times a year or hopefully more, right? <laughs> yeah, and if you think about the offseason, the guys that really stand out. Um, a long time ago, I read that baseball book, The Boys of Summer, about the Brooklyn Dodgers. And the slugger, you know, he lived in like Minnesota or something. Like it was brutally cold. And in the off season, before they had all these camps that people go to now, he would go into his basement and from a rafter, he had chained a baseball that he had held together with duct tape. And so he would take swings at a baseball in his basement. And he eventually drilled out a bat. And instead of putting cork in it, he put lead in it. And every day he tried to get a thousand swings. Now think about that. Like he's a power hitter. Like you mentioned a home run hitter. And I immediately thought of that guy. It's like, oh yeah, that guy with the lead bat swinging in the middle of winter when nobody else is even practicing. He's doing his one thing because if he's going to really stand out among the best of the best, he's got to put more time on the task than anyone else. So it's this idea of identifying what's the one activity that would give me the most results, right? Towards what I want to have happen and make that a habit. Because you have to work for a habit. So for 66 days, in theory, you have to exert mental discipline to do that thing, whether it's go to the gym or get up early so you can write on your novel or whatever that is. But after that, the habit starts working for you. I don't know if you've ever had like a gym routine in the morning where, you know, for the first few weeks, like, you know, you're just dead tired waking up so early. And then all of a sudden your body starts waking up before the alarm goes off. Like, that's a sign that your body has said, I'm up for this now. Like, I've acclimated to this new habit. So we just tell people, start with that. And when you formed a habit, you can add another one on top of it. But just do one at a time. I mean, one of my next questions was kind of how does somebody build momentum towards a goal? I think in some ways I've just kind of described that for you, right? So you've got this habit that's working for you. And so the momentum comes as you're able to knock over bigger and bigger dominoes. And I'll give you an example. I think a lot of people who want to test this out, I'll tell them, go try it out in some athletic venture because the feedback cycle is so fast in athletics. Like I just downloaded an app called the 100 Push-Up Challenge. And when I started the challenge, I could do 21 push-ups in a row. And I got to the end of it. And I think it took eight weeks. And I failed the first time. I could do 64 in a row. But it was like a massive leap. But every day you just did one thing. You did push-ups and you did a certain number of them. I took it again. I jumped to week three. And so in a total of, I think, 11 weeks or whatever, three more weeks, I did 100 push-ups in a row. And the momentum comes with every time you kind of break through a ceiling of achievement, you get this sense of elation. Like, holy cow, I just did 40 friggin' push-ups in a row. I couldn't do that before. So I think the momentum comes when you stick to it, even when you're really bad in the beginning, because you start getting this feedback cycle of mastery. I'm getting better. I'm getting better. And that creates more momentum to keep going because now you're seeing the results. It's like, you know, most diets don't, you don't see anything for like four weeks. And then people start saying, hey, you look thin. That's momentum. You have to kind of get through that dip to get there though. I know a lot of times when people are kind of setting goals, they get stressed out or they cheat because they, they don't want to admit to people around them, to themselves, that this is what they really want, right? How, what are some kind of effective strategies for dialing down that stress as somebody pursues a goal? Um, I think the temptation to cheat is almost always right about external pressures. When you're doing it for yourself, you're intrinsically motivated to do something. 
why would you ever cheat, right? It's just you and you're keeping the score for yourself. Um, I get a lot of positive momentum from putting my goals out there. Um, but I also know that, especially in my position, I have to do them with integrity. So, you know, if people are struggling with that, I might just say, you know, why don't you keep it a secret for a while? Um, and that will reduce your maybe tendency to, to, to fudge on something. Are you guys big advocates or are you, Jay, a big advocate of kind of writing your goals down? What do you think about telling other people? I know you mentioned that in your personal life, you make them public. How, how do you approach these goals that you pursue as far as talking about them to other people or even to yourself? Yeah, I'm a crazy. I'm one of those crazy people that's got goals all over the map. You know, I try to focus on one at a time to be true to my book. Um, but there's there's proven proven facts out there that when people write down their goals, they're a lot more likely um, to achieve them. And so I would first look at people and say, you know what, are you, write them down so that it's tangible and you have a deadline attached to it. And I'm just flipping through my book here because the stat eludes me right now. But when you write down your goals, I think you're 30% more likely to achieve, 39.5% more likely to succeed. This, the second level of, of achievement there is actually getting some form of accountability. Is there someone you're willing to be accountable to? For most people, that's a coach, especially in athletics. But people who share their goals with the world, if they want to be accountable to their Facebook page, that's fine. Um, but also maybe with an individual, someone that matters to them, that they don't want to disappoint. Just the simple act of emailing your progress towards those goals to, to one person every two weeks People who do that improve their results by 77%. It's a massive leap forward. So writing them down is a huge first step, but being accountable to making progress to someone is massive. And I usually tell people there's three ways you do that. You know, you can get a mentor. If you've got a mentor in your life saying, I'm making a commitment to do X, I would like you to hold me accountable. And so between now and X, I'm going to achieve that. Is that okay with you? And most people will agree. Because their job is simply to ask you, did you do what you did? Did you say that you said you would do? You can do that with a peer. And you can also have a formal relationship with a coach. Um, I personally pay for one. That's something I chose to do about two years ago. Um, I just felt like for me to achieve what I wanted to achieve professionally, I needed to have someone with a bigger viewpoint on the professional life I was trying to lead that could give me regular course correction. What do you recommend looking for when you're kind of trying to find this person that you are going to be accountable to? I think you have to ask the honest question, am I willing to be accountable to this person? I don't like the idea of being held accountable. It sounds kind of parental to me. But there are people that I respect that I'm willing to be accountable to. So it could be a peer that you respect. So you don't want to lose their respect is almost always the motivation, right? Saying, hey, I'm going to lose 10 pounds by this date. And however you want to rig it, right? Here's a check to the, the political party I hate. You're going to put it in the mail if I don't do that, right? So you're my accountability partner um, or a coach. And, you know, for me, the incentive is, you know, it's a thousand bucks a month. That 30 minute call every week has a big price tag attached to it. And so I don't want to waste it. So I prepare for it. I think about it the night before. I ask myself that I did. Do I do what I meant to do? I know people who pay nine or 10 times that to have a coach. And it's really the incentive of, I don't want to waste this money um, that gets them going. So I, I look for someone fundamentally that you're willing to be accountable to for whatever your reasons are. 
um, versus someone who is in a position of power over you that holds you accountable. What are some of the other advantages in addition to having a broader viewpoint or accountability that you think are benefits? You know, I mean, I think coaches have their areas of expertise. You know, they have a specialty, they have a passion, they have their one thing. Um, my wife has had a number of coaches. She had coaches that really helped her for a period of time move her financial intelligence forward. Um, had another one that really helped her with her hiring practices around our business that really held her accountable to following a process and not going with her gut when she's about to pay someone a salary. So I think that in the area that you're looking to improve in, does this person have a track record? You know, if I want to become a better batter in the major leagues, I'm going to go to a batting coach, you know, and preferably someone who maybe had a very high on-base percentage or, you know, really great credentials as a professional player themselves. Um, I'm not sure I'm going to go to someone who's a swim coach, right? So I think you just look for someone who has special knowledge that, you know, you can rely on. And the best, the best way to do that is by referrals. If you know people who are in the coaching relationship, ask them what it's like. Chances are, if they are getting benefit from it, you will too. We want to believe we're all unique snowflakes, but most experience is pretty shared. Dating coach Chris Luna here. This is the perfect time to take a quick break to talk to you about three simple things that you can do to dramatically change your life. First, listen to this entire podcast and then subscribe through SoundCloud, iTunes, or Stitcher. This way you'll immediately be notified every time we share a new release. If you listen and apply the ideas we discuss on these podcasts, it will change your life forever. Second, go to craftchristmas.com, create an account, and become a member of our community. There you can read articles, listen to podcasts, watch videos, ask us questions, and document your journey in our forums. Great men don't become great on their own. All great men are members of a community, and Craft Charisma is your community. Finally, if you're serious, and I know that you are, about making massive changes to your life as quickly as possible, check out our live coaching programs on our website. Craft Charisma live programs are the fastest way to improve your dating and social life. And who knows? Attend our live programs, let us get to know you, and you may end up as a member of the Craft Charisma team. Again, thank you for listening. Now back to the podcast. Yeah, one of the things that we'll often tell people is you can get the the best knowledge leads to the best strategies. The best strategies lead to the best results. Um, so if somebody goes out and they get incredible at a strategy that sucks, they're never going to get very good results. But if they learn strategies that are amazing, um, like the best strategies in the world, even if they don't ever kind of achieve them on the same level as some other people, still probably do fairly well. And so as far as intellectual capital ideas, essentially you're, you're trying to kind of pick up other people's strategies, right? Yeah, that's we call that modeling. Um, I don't know if that's the formal term for it, but it's the term we use. And we devoted a whole chapter to it. And it's about if you begin with a big model um, for achieving your goals, you don't have to reinvent yourself along the way. You know, so if you're going to learn how to run, you know, a 5K, you know, it doesn't mean you have to go take on an ultra marathoners diet. But if you think that you might be progressing beyond that, you might want to develop some habits of just distant runners, distance runners in general versus focusing on the one event. So, you know, I coach people, is your business plan something that you could ride 
you know, all the way from 1 million to 100 million? Or are you going to have to reinvent yourself all along the way? And asking, looking for bigger models. So go out there and find someone who's doing what you're doing, who's done it on a massive scale, and then work backwards to where you would be in that model. Because now you're at least working with a blueprint that can take you much, much farther than just like the end of this year. So I, I love that idea because when you go out, like an example was my wife and I set out to be millionaires. And, you know, we were just written a book on investing and we said, you know what, we're going to start investing in residential real estate. And our goal is within 10 years to have a net worth of a million dollars. And one of the first things we started doing was, well, probably we should start hanging out with people who are already millionaires because maybe they think or do things differently than we do. And it's amazing how different the mindset is of someone who's renting an apartment than from someone who owns, you know, a hundred multifamily homes in, in one market area. How they look at things is very different. And you just adopt that bigger mindset at the beginning and you can ride it a lot further. No, I think that's a wonderful example. And it makes me think of Plato's allegory in the cave or this idea that you have this one perspective and you get stuck in this perspective. And it's not until you take yourself out of that environment that you can begin to see that there's more there. And uh, essentially you're talking about kind of developing the mindset of somebody who knows how to make a million dollars or how to make a hundred million dollars. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. And it's not about not being true to yourself. I think that there is a mindset, um, a perspective, and there's also like a really practical fundamental model. I mean, that you can follow along the way. Um, I think that when you ask bigger questions of your life and you set bigger goals, it forces you to look for bigger models to achieve things because you're, you know, we call it, you know, being entrepreneurial versus purposeful. And, you know, everybody, like all entrepreneurs are kind of good at a lot of stuff, which is one of the reasons they become entrepreneurs. But they're not, they're probably great at one thing, not everything. Because like when you open up a business, you're the janitor one minute, you're the accountant one minute, you're the CEO the one minute, right? You have all of those hats. You have to be willing to do them. That's entrepreneurial. But to be purposeful about the things that you need to do well you need to say, well, am I doing this the best way possible? Gary always asks me, is this your best or is it the best way it can be done? And I hate that question because it means that I probably didn't stop to think about how I was about to go about doing some big initiative for us. Did I go out and benchmark how the best I've approached the same problem? I don't know if you've ever played golf, Chris, but I remember learning as a kid. I don't really play much now, but the right model for holding a golf club is completely unintuitive. You would never get there on your own without someone pointing out to you. No, you interlock these fingers. It's not like a baseball bat at all. So there is a model for how you approach things. And some people have probably figured it out. And you can just start where they left off. Why wouldn't you start? I mean, ego is the answer. Or you're just too lazy to go look or don't know to go look. Ignorance might be another reason. But why wouldn't you step out there and say, well, why can't I just start with what they're doing? You know, if I'm going to learn how to do the breaststroke, why don't I just mimic, you know, what Michael Phelps does? You know, I have a feeling he's probably got probably got pretty good form, you know, instead of just figuring it out on my own. One of the questions I want to ask you was about kind of reviving energy. If somebody has kind of this one goal, but they're not excited about it, what do you suggest? Oh, yeah, that's a, it, it comes up all the time. I think that um, extraordinary results actually... Um, a lot of times take a period of time to show up. You're doing your one thing, you're doing your one thing. And we describe it as a hockey stick 
you know, because it looks like a hockey stick if you graft it out. It looks like nothing's happening, and then all of a sudden a lot of stuff happens. And a lot of people give up right before the end, um, and they run out of energy. The feedback cycle is not giving them enough. So I think there's two ways. On a really big sense, um, we have a lot in the book about purpose. You know, what's your one thing on a bigger sense, right? You know, why are you here? Why are you doing this? I think when people get in touch with their core motivation for why they're doing what they're doing, it can re-energize them. And, and clarity on that matters a lot. Um, chances are people are not working for the money. It's got to be something bigger than that. Um, that's, a, that's a very finite source of motivation. But if you can get in touch with that, that's kind of the ultimate power charge because beware the person, even with low skills, that is incredibly motivated because they won't give up. Um, on a real practical level, um, we kind of really hit hard this idea of what willpower looks like. And I don't know how familiar you are with the book, but it's one of the lies that we kind of debunked right in the beginning is that this idea of willpower, where there's a will, there's a way, is on will call for you. That you can just call on that mental brain power anytime you need to get stuff done. And um, it really surprised me. It changed the way I approached my diet, my day, and also like my parenting. And the big key takeaway here is, is that your willpower is exactly as powerful as you think it is, but it's a lot more like the battery on your phone. The moment you wake up, every decision you make draws down energy. Literally, they've measured people. They'll, they'll be taking a quiz or a test of willpower, and they'll take one, everybody in the group, and half the people will be given lemonade with real sugar, and half the people will be given lemonade without. And the people who have the you know, the fake sweetener in it, right? They don't get that re-energized. Their bloodstream is literally filled, right, with more energy for their brain to operate on. They make 50% more errors on the subsequent test than the other people do. So it's incredibly fragile. And, you know, there's all this stuff written. I think they're now calling it cognitive stamina in all the magazines, you know, about how Steve Jobs wore the same clothes every day. So that's one less decision on his palate. But it's real. And so you have to be constantly nourishing your brain. You know, food for thought is a very literal sense. And you need to do your most important work in the morning when you typically are going to have the most willpower to do it. So when we talk about forming habits and having energy, I usually tell people, make it happen as early in the day as humanly possible. Um, if you need to exercise every day to hit a fitness goal, do it before work, not after. One, you're going to have willpower. So on the rainy days when you don't want to do it, you can make yourself do it. There's no guarantee that the willpower will be available to you at the end of the day. You could exhaust it. And it's very finite. Um, one, probably the most popular cited study that we quote is by a guy named Baba Shiv. And he was out of the University of Stanford. And he did an experiment on willpower. And he asked a bunch of graduate students, around 200, to memorize a number. And half of them got a two-digit number, and half of them got a seven-digit number. And all they had to do was stare at the number until they had it memorized, hand in their piece of paper, walk down a hallway to another room where they would tell the other researcher, this is my number. So they thought it was a test of their ability to memorize, but 100% of them got it right, because anybody giving all the time in the world can memorize a two- or a seven-digit number. What they did know is the experiment was in the hallway in between. And in the hallway in between, they had a little sign that said, thanks for participating in our study. Please pick up a free snack. And it was a choice of a fruit salad or chocolate cake. 
and the people who memorize seven digits, right, just that much more horsepower from their brain, were 50% more likely to pick the chocolate cake than the other people. So that tiny cognitive load. So I think a lot of people overestimate their power to kind of grit through things, and they really need to be focused on, am I feeding my mind so that I can make those kinds of decisions and grit through things all day long? It's why we give kids snacks in the afternoon. They can't behave after school, right? They've used all of their willpower sitting still in desk and they melt down when they get home. That's why moms everywhere have been giving them snacks. So if you look in my office, I'm staring at it. I've got a bowl and I've got apples and I've got power bars. And around 10 in the morning, you know, between the two meals, I'll have half a power bar. And in the afternoon, I might have the other half or an apple. What I'm trying to do is give my body, not coffee, right? but some sort of fuel like protein or complex carbohydrates is going to break down over the longest period of time possible because as a writer, someone who studies and thinks a lot and makes decisions all day long, I need to have my number one asset working at the end of the day. And so for me, it was a matter of nutrition. So it's kind of the last piece of the puzzle on the power habits. You know, you figure out what it is, you try to make it a habit, and the best time to do that is in the morning when everybody has that best supply of willpower to make them do the things that they may not want to do because, but they need to do. It makes me think a little bit about uh, scheduling and kind of shifting things around in the sense that somebody might make working out their priority because they're out of shape first thing in the morning. Their long-term goal isn't to be a bodybuilder or it isn't to be, but they realize that right now their one thing that's most important to them is getting their body back into a certain type of physical condition. So in that case, it would probably make sense to spend three or four months where that's the first thing that they do. And then three or four months, maybe shift their workout later in the day and focus on whatever that one thing is. So that that way, working out doesn't consume the most valuable part of their energy. I, I don't know if this makes sense. I think you're on the right track. The only thing I would correct is I, I'm not sure I would shift it. When you, the moment you shift it to a new pattern, you're forming a new habit. It might be a, a smaller test because you've already got the habit of going to the gym down, but now you've got a new time that you're going to have to tell the world and yourself that I'm going to be available at this time consistently. So as an example, you know, my wife and I, you know, we had two small kids. They're 17 months apart and we couldn't leave them at home and we both had fitness goals. And so the idea of trading off nights at the gym was very unattractive because that was family time we were going to lose. After a long day, we both had big jobs, like really trotting out to the gym in the middle of the night was not attractive to either of us. So we have a trainer that shows up on our doorstep three nights a week, three three nights. It's 5.30 in the morning. So I worked out this morning starting at 5.30, but I've been doing that for almost two and a half years. And I'll tell you for a fact that other than my own unwillingness to step out the door and work out, there's nothing that stands between me and that workout. There's nothing I'd rather watch on TV. No one is trying to set an appointment with me. There's no must-see event that's going to interfere with it. There's The rest of the world's asleep. You know, so really between Whenever time you're willing to wake up, that's why most elite athletes do a lot of their training in the morning. There's no interference. So if it's truly a priority, and it was for me, I had back surgery and shoulder surgery, and I had a lot of recovery I needed to do. It's truly you know, truly important to you. Make it the first thing you do in the day. For me, I show up at lunch today. I mean, I'll get off this call. I've already done 
some of my most important professional work. I've also done my most important thing for physical work, right? I can go out and have a bacon cheeseburger and I'll feel kind of righteous about it because I've already done my exercise. I don't have to feel guilty about it. <laughs> so I like that. You know, it's not something hanging over my head. I've already got it cleared. I've checked that off first thing. So I think there's a guy, um, Hal Elrod, that wrote a really good book called The Miracle Morning. And it was very much in alignment with this. And his whole theory was to build three or four power habits, you know, to read great books, to work out, to meditate, to plan your day all before eight o'clock in the morning. When the most of the world is just getting out, you've already covered four of your most important habits. And I love that concept because that's my day. That's Gary's day. Most of the people I know that are incredibly successful, they get up about two hours before the rest of the world and they've gotten tons of important stuff knocked out before they ever even step into the office. They fed their mind, they fed their body, and they've worked out whatever it is they needed to do. They got it done before everyone else could interfere. That makes absolute sense to me. I had always kind of learned to develop these habits. For example, work out every day at the same time. Whatever you decide to do, kind of make that a habit so you have essentially less things to think about. It just becomes a part of your day. Yeah, it's a ritual. Yeah, exactly. But as you were talking about kind of depleting energy throughout the day, I started to question that a little bit and think, well, does that make sense? Or should, like, for example, if I, let's say I was a writer, would it make sense to focus first thing in the morning on writing if writing was a bigger priority or fitness once I had gotten into shape, like assuming that I was a writer who was out of shape? I think at this point, we're splitting hairs a little bit. You're both, you're do, if you're doing both in the morning, first thing, the odds are good that you'll do both of them. Um, whatever you do first has got the highest chance of success. There's just, that's it. I know people, I write, I like to write in the morning. I actually think really well when I'm exercising and I get most of my best ideas when I'm exercising. And then it makes my writing that happens after really productive. So that's me. There might be people that, you know, they'll write and then they need to just unwind and that allows them to turn their brain off and transition. So I think it might be a personal thing. Uh, but in general, by shifting those rituals or habits to the morning, you've got less opportunities for people to interfere. Um, you'll have the most willpower available, and it's a lot more likely that those habits will stick over time. That makes sense. That was one of my next questions was, how do people stay on track? You know, um, how do people stay on track? Motivation. It comes back to, why am I doing all this? <laughs> you know, why is it important to me? Um, I got real clear, you know, something about, you know, having kids. And I was very clear early on that I wanted to get married and have kids, that I didn't want to be the dad that was, you know, fat and in an armchair, you know, and setting that example for my kids. So it was real important for me, not only just for my marriage and for my physical self, that I felt like I wanted to be a good role model for kids that weren't even there yet. But I was focused on, you know, I don't enjoy working out. I just, I'll get that right out there. I don't enjoy it. I'm doing it because I want to live longer and I want to live better while I'm alive. Um, it allows me to travel and do things. You know, I, I got to where my shoulder was so bad I couldn't throw a football with my son in the front yard. You know, it's like, that sucks. Now it's time to really focus on getting this thing better. And so I did the rehab, I did the surgery. It's in the rearview mirror. So figure out why. And uh, that's, again, that's that persistence. You'll get the feedback on getting better over time. Any other suggestions on how people can master what's most important to them? Um, you know, we have a chapter in there on mastery. Um, 
And I think the word, you know, whatever your one thing is, now we're talking about a big one. You don't need to master trivial stuff. You need to master the stuff that's important. You know, I want to master um, my craft. Um, I want to master um, fly fishing, which I really enjoy. It's a hobby that I'm passionate about. Um, and I want to master being a good dad and a good husband. Like those are the things that are worth devoting a lot of energy over time. So first lesson about mastering things is save that word for the things that matter. Second one is it's not as tough as people would assume. Um, there's a great story. Um, and the guy's name is Jigoro Kano. And he's the guy who founded judo, like, you know, the martial art judo. And so when he was dying, um, he gathered all of his best students from around the globe to his bedside. And that's kind of a tradition, you know, to, to have your family around you um, before you die. And he imparted his, this message to his students. He said that he wanted to be buried in his white belt. And a lot of been made of a lot was made of that. And a guy named George Leonard wrote about it in a book called Mastery. That's one of my favorites. But basically he was saying, you know, in life, the reason he was a master, the best that ever was at that is that he adopted this mindset that he was always a student, that he always had something to learn. And that he was felt so strongly about that, he wanted to show his students that he was going to take that into the next life as well. That he was going to be buried as a beginner, because that was his mindset. And so when people ask me about mastery, because they want to be really good at things, we want to be kick-ass at the stuff that matters to us. Um, I just say, then set your ego aside and say, I always have something to learn. The moment people adopt that mindset that I'm a lifetime learner, I'm just committed to always asking, how can I do this better? How can I do this better? Then you're going to be open to that mastery journey. It's people who get satisfied and feel like they've arrived. Um, mastery is not a destination. It's a process that you always continue. I mean, that's why people like, I hate to trot out Tiger Woods because that's kind of tired, but the guy went through like four swing coaches, even when he was on the top of his game. He was always asking, how can I improve? And the best of the best, you'll see that as a hallmark. They're always looking. They're looking for new people who can educate them. They're reading books about it. They're trying to get better. They just have this attitude of, I'm a student. I'm not a master. I'm a student. You also have a great story that I want to get in here because I know we're getting towards the end of this about how you met your wife. You were talking about that before the podcast. And I was wondering if you could tell that story. It's funny. And we were talking a little bit about, you know, the, the audience for the craft of charisma and how a lot of it, it can be about dating. And I was asking how this, you know, this book might dovetail. And it just coincidence. I met my wife in New York um, when I had, after a lot of dating and all that comes with it in New York City, I just kind of got frustrated and just decided to stop focusing on meeting people and dating them and just work on myself. So, um, gosh, this would have been in 1997. And I focused really, really hard on one, I was going to finish my master's. So I wrote my thesis that summer. So I spent a lot of time, you know, after work, going back to the house and just working on that. And then in order to quit smoking, I ran my first road race, which happened to be the New York Marathon. And that was a process that's very much about lining dominoes. And every week I was hitting a new high. I ran three miles, then I ran five miles, then seven, then a half marathon. And I spent a lot of time working on myself. And I, I, I'm just convinced that when my wife showed up, the fact that I wasn't searching, that I was more searching for who I could be was one of the things that made her attracted to me. 
And I tell young people that are around me that are intent on finding the right person, I said, go find yourself and get really passionate about something and you'll be surprised who will find you as a result. Because I'm convinced that's part of the formula. So, you know, maybe maybe part of how this dovetails with your site is, you know, if people can discover their one thing and really immerse themselves in it, they might be surprised at what that attracts in terms of relationships, you know, friends and otherwise, right, and opportunities to their lives. Yeah, I love that story. I often tell people that it's the mass of the sun that keeps the planets in line. So kind of focus on yourself and, and you'll find that the people that you want in your life will fall into orbit. <laughs> there you go. It's so true. And the people that fall into orbit will be very much in line with what matters to you because that's what attracted them to you. Any other kind of last thoughts, ideas, words of wisdom for the listeners? You know what? I would just tell people to, as an act of faith, just to go figure out their one thing in some little area of their life that matters to them. You know, what's the one thing I can do to improve my workouts? What's the one thing I can do to, you know, I took a 66-day challenge once on improving my typing speed. You know, I'm a writer, and I never took a typing class. It's ridiculous. So, you know, we have a thing called a 66-day challenge on our website. And just say, go on there for 66 days. Try to build a new habit in your life and see what doesn't show up. Um, it's pretty, it's pretty cool to watch you improve even in a short period of time and the commitment it actually takes to do 66 days will surprise people. But that is the magic recipe when you can line up and figure out how to incorporate new and powerful habits into your life. Sustaining them is not a big deal. It's actually incorporating them. That's a big one. So just start with something and see where it takes you. Jay, this has been absolutely incredible. I'm going to wrap this up. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. It's been a pleasure. And if you're listening, you want to learn more about Jay, about his books, uh, about his most recent book, The One Thing, I'm going to post some links on the Craft Charisma website and within the description of this podcast so you can find out about him, his books, the different things that he's doing more easily. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Thanks a lot for having me. It's Dating Coach Chris Thona here. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. And we absolutely love making this podcast. We make this podcast for you. So if there's somebody that you want on the show, let me know. I will yell, scream, stand in front of their house, do everything I do to get them on the show for you. Also, don't hesitate to follow the podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes and Stitcher. You can also give us a shout out through social media, Facebook, Twitter, share it with your friends. And lastly, Go to the Craft Christmas website and create an account. There you can talk about the podcast and communicate with me directly. So thank you again for taking time to listen. You will hear again from me soon.